Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. I'm a little bit heartened by this because Ben Shapiro is apparently expanding the range of people he's willing to debate. Maybe one day I'll fit within that purview. He debated Anna Kasparian, uh, who, who I like, by the way, just recently, and the full debate was posted here. And we're going to take a look at it, folks. We're going to give our impressions. I haven't been spoiled for a single goddamn second of this conversation. Uh, already, we can see who's winning the MOG game. Anna's coming out better dressed, taller, fitter, cleaner. Pogger, uh, than Ben Shapiro, already, uh, holding frame better, straight back, you know? Uh, Sigma female frame, very true. So we'll see if she's able to keep that up. Let me ask each of you to introduce the other. Ben, would you like to introduce- And I have to zoom this in just to, or sorry, not zoom it in, zoom it forward just a little bit. Hope you can understand Ben Shapiro at high speeds. Anna. Sure, so this is Anna Kasparian. She is, first of all, a big round of applause for Anna because this is a Chamber of Commerce meeting. <laughs> Anna's quite famously a Bernie Sanders supporter, so it takes a lot of guts to get up in front of a business audience, and she really deserves a lot of credit for that, for sure. She's the co-host of the immensely popular Young Turks, which is a show you can find on YouTube. It's also a podcast, and it's available pretty much everywhere. And uh, she's also the producer of that show, executive producer of that show. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Anna, you're I like how the, the second camera that faces Ben Shapiro makes him look evil. Like, his face is cloaked in shadow. There's no backlight. Sure. All right. Um, first of all, thank, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and everyone's been so hospitable and incredibly polite and nice, uh, and I really appreciate that. Ben, uh, I just found out, uh, based on what Gene told me, in, like suggested me to be a part of this conversation, and I really appreciate that. Um, you know, Ben is the co-founder of uh, The Daily Wire, incredibly, incredibly well-known, uh, especially in the media space, the new media space specifically, but he's certainly made his rounds in traditional media as well. Um, and he has uh, really popularized a lot of conservative ideals, conservative beliefs that I think we're getting a little played out by some of the uh, old guard of conservatism. So, um, you know, Ben is no- I take it back. If debating Ben means I have to say nice stuff about him at the beginning, I can't do it. If this is the precondition, then I can't do it. Known for being sharp, uh, being able to defend his uh, viewpoints without engaging in personal attacks. So I'm looking forward to having say, this conversation yeah, with got Ben nice and, uh, you know, sharing our ideas with one another and, you know, with everyone here. So thank you for having me. Well, we love civility, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, for those of you who, who looked at it, you know our topic is leading political voices of the next generation of leaders. So, you're thought leaders within your individual, um, within your generation, a generation that's much younger than mine. Um, what would you like the people of your generation to know moving forward? Anna, let's start with you. Well, I think that my generation is certainly pretty passionate about changing things, certainly changing the way that they work and live. Uh, we're seeing that play out currently with the pandemic and the labor shortage that's taking place. And I'd like them to know that we don't really need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we've seen strategies and solutions that have worked in the past. Uh, this country has gone through many terrible things in its history. It's a very short history, you know, relative to other countries. And uh, despite all of those awful things that have happened, things like the Great Depression, for instance, uh, the country was still able to pull through. And I, I would suggest looking to history at the solutions that worked, um, specifically a strong labor movement, in order to, you know, really rework the power dynamic that we're seeing right now in the workplace. I think a lot of the 
reasoning for not going back to the jobs that uh, workers were previously working in uh, prior to the pandemic has to do with the fact that, hey, you know, we've been staying home during the lockdown. Uh, now we realize that spending time with our family, having a little free time for ourselves, being able to go outdoors and do recreational things, that's important to us. So they're reimagining what their lives could be like if they take a little bit of power back uh, in the workplace. And I think that that's definitely possible. Totally agree with these points. However, I already see the beginnings of what is going to be a problem moving forward. And I, can t I know because I can smell it. It's going, to be, um, it's going to be aggression and directness. Two main things here. First of all, conservative politicking requires an antagonist, uh, which means that Ben Shapiro is going to focus heavily on, in the, in the context of this discussion, I imagine, um, he, he's going to frame improving America's economy in relationship to opposing some kind of enemy. And I think in Anna's case, it might be beneficial to adopt that framing and reciprocate it by saying that, you know, free market economics is dictating that workers want higher wages. You know, the supply demand chain is clearly operating in favor of the workers' demands right now. If people aren't coming out for your jobs, that means you should be paying them more. Business owners are all in favor of, you know, supply and demand until it works against them. And then all of a sudden, they want the government to start passing policies to force workers into action. I think that directness could definitely be a little beneficial here. Yeah, I think, but but what she's saying is completely agreeable right there. You know, I, I, I agree. Maybe she's saving it for the future. We'll find out. Well, um, they just got to fight for it. They got to organize. They got to work together and not get distracted by manufactured culture wars that we see play out in the media every day. True. And how about folks on your side? So, I mean, I think that for folks on my side, I, I sort of have the same message for, for everybody on all sides, which is that uh, the world did not begin spinning when you were born. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. there's a great amount of wisdom, accumulated wisdom, that has built up over literally thousands of years, uh, in the United States over hundreds of years, uh, that is well worth going back to as a source of both inspiration and understanding of exactly why the system is supposed to weigh and work in a, in a particular way. And that requires a certain understanding of human nature, of human beings, as both capable of amazing things, but also as inherently flawed and ambitious, and why you need a governmental system that is capable of checking ambition with ambition, checks and balances, subsidiarity, the, the belief in, in a federalist system that allows for experimentation on a local level without attempting to cram one-size-fits-all solutions on everybody from the federal level. But that begins with reading history. It does begin with understanding some basic philosophies about how the United States works, because if it feels like the country is coming apart, and it really does feel like that more and more every day, uh, that is because uh, I think that there is a failure to agree on some of the central bases for the country. So we're either going to have to clarify where the disagreements are, or we're going to be in serious trouble as a country. This, that, didn't, that didn't mean anything. Wasn't he asked, what information would you like to convey to, like, the modern, like, what are you trying to deliver to, like, the modern political, as, as thought leaders, like, what are you trying to convey? Like, what does that, what would that even mean? The world has existed for longer than you, and look at history, because, yeah, it, it, what, there is nothing in there. What there is... Uh, what there was there was an implication, and the implication was that progressives and people who want, like, union organizing and stuff are being, like, self-centered, that they're being, like, uh, obtuse, myopic, that they're unaware of, like, the legacy of the past, stuff like that, you know? It, it, it seems to me like he's kind of implying that the people who disagree with him broadly, or that a lot of people, but maybe I think specifically there, are, are acting out of some kind of ignorance of the way these systems work. I love the answers because it leads directly into what I want to ask you about next. It's going to be the most obvious statement I want to make tonight. The last 18 months have seen significant turmoil, not only with COVID, but with our social, our cultural upheavals, as we've seen uh, people, you know, 
protesting some just horrible, egregious acts. Uh, as you noted, the future of work, how we work, all those things are out there for discussion. Trust in institutions um, and, and, and trust or an understanding, as Ben said, of literally the basis of our society. And I saw a great quote. I mean, we've had the 1619 Project. We've had the, uh, the book called 1620, 1776 Commission, all of them designed to push back on that. I saw a great quote from a noted political scientist who said, America is not a lie, but a disappointment, but a disappointment because it is a hope. Would you agree is that, that that's a good description? And would you also agree like that, that the U.S. is an exceptional country? Ben, I'll start with you. I mean, I obviously believe that the United States is an exceptional country. I think that our history is filled with moments of glory. It's also filled with some terrible tragedy and some terrible evil. He really does look evil from here. Man, I actually have to wonder who they got on the lights here. Holy shit. Uh, there's no question about any of that. Uh, to, to suggest that America is a disappointment is to suggest that utopia is a real place. Uh, or that the, it, it, whenever you say somebody's a disappointment, you have to say compared to what? And what, what exactly are you shooting for? Compared to the ideal? Of course, everybody's a disappointment. Saints are disappointments compared to the ideal. But if what you're talking about is America as a whole is somehow disappointing compared to, for example, what other countries around the world stand for or what they have provided to their citizens. Or what about the ideals America claimed to stand for? You know, usually when something is a disappointment, there's the reality and then the expectation, right? So obviously, if somebody's accusing America of being disappointing, it's because they didn't meet an expectation. Like, you know, uh, being a democracy that didn't actually have non-secondary citizenship class until the 1960s, uh, claiming all men are equal under God, but allowing slavery. Uh, you know, there are a couple of things here that are pretty... Uh, that a little bit disappointing. America claims to be the land of opportunity and the great melting pot, but in reality, we're pretty nativist and xenophobic here. And additionally, uh, we have lower social mobility than a bunch of social democracies in Europe. Or what they have provided to the globe, then by no means is America a disappointment. America is a tremendous success story. In fact, it's the greatest success story in world history. This is a very, very biased audience. So there are parts of that I agree with, uh, some parts that I disagree with. Uh, for the most part, I, I just want to note that the idea of America is an incredible uh, idea. Uh, I think that the country has failed to live up to its ideals. Uh, I think that there are certain things that are transpiring as we speak that uh, go unchecked. You know, we are supposed to have a system of checks and balances, but I think more often than not, we see a system that is, in fact, rigged in favor of the powerful. I'll give you specific examples. You know. In the beginning of the pandemic, there were lawmakers in the Senate uh, who engaged in this minimalizing, like just completely minimizing uh, the severity of the pandemic to the point where I actually didn't think that COVID was a serious threat to me, my health, my family's health. Uh, in fact, in February, I went on a cruise with my in-laws and had a great time and didn't think that COVID was going to be an issue. Then I find out, uh, of course, a month later, everything starts shutting down. Uh, people I know get incredibly sick. And then news reports come out in regard to members of the Senate who had a classified briefing, closed door briefing on the severity of COVID and immediately turned around and started selling their stocks. Uh, they started buying tech stocks, realizing that people are likely to work home, <laughs> so they might need to invest in um, technology or companies that uh, offer technologies that make that possible. Basically, there's insider trading happening within the Senate. And I'm saying it out loud, and I'm saying it on a regular basis, because that kind of activity, that type of behavior, first of all, is illegal for the average American, should not be legal for members of the Senate. Uh, the fact that we have... Okay. The fact that we have lawmakers who are personally invested in businesses that they're deciding legislation on 
is unacceptable. So when you talk about the lack of trust in our institutions, I understand that lack of trust. And that lack of trust has led to the situation that we're experiencing today with COVID, where people don't believe in what the CDC is telling them, where people question what journalists are reporting about. They just assume because of the lies that have been told, because of the system being rigged against them, they just assume that they're being lied to. And and now- I like this a lot. I think this is really good. I think this is one of the things like the conservative progressive gap is so evident where all conservatives care about doing is jerking themselves off over how much they like America. It's all they talk about. And I think America is great. America is very good. The greatest experiment actually in the history of America. Like they never talk about how to make it better. Anna cares about making the country better. Uh, ben cares about protecting it from people who say it can be made better. That's the ultimate difference there. And when, and, but conservatives do have their activist moments and it's usually when they're making an effort to make that country worse. Now we find ourselves in this difficult position where we're trying to find solutions, we're trying to come together so we combat COVID effectively, get people back to work so people can thrive, families can thrive, but that's incredibly difficult to do when people don't trust in our institutions. So earlier this evening, we had, three of us had some interesting conversations about the way that our culture's broken, the way that civility has broken down. Let me give you a couple of numbers that are actually pretty scary. 15% of Americans have terminated a friendship over political differences. The reality is 53% of the R's have a Democrat friend, only 32% of Democrats have a Republican friend. Yeah. Um, granted, a lot of that is report is being related to former President Trump. Uh, Kevin Drum, who I don't know, but is a liberal journalist with Mother Jones, said, quote, if you hate culture wars, blame liberals. He wrote that in Washington Monthly. Um, is it fair to blame more liberals for the culture divide or is it? So this is something Republicans like to do where they frame the culture war as being a matter of tolerance of their opinions, which it's not. Those are different things. Um, there is no obligation. So there is no reason why Democrats should really care to have a Republican friend if they don't want to. Like why? Republicans are bad. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. It, uh, I don't believe in ending friendships over politics. Really? You don't? You don't, you don't believe that, really. Why not? Would you be friends with, like, a neo-Nazi? No? Well, that's, I mean, that's a political difference. I don't, what, no? Okay. It's totally okay to not want to be friends with people with bad values. Um, you want to surround yourself with people uh, who have good values. Maybe not people you agree with, necessarily, but people who are, at the very least, uh, well-ordered in their values. Also, um, I like how this guy's argument, or this guy's like posit, like, do you think liberals are responsible for the culture war? Is, um, <laughs> actually, hold on one second. Let me go to youtube.com real quick. And let me take a look at two YouTube channels, if I may, because I just want to, I just want to get a vibe here if possible. So we have two organizations, the Daily Wire and the Young Turks, right? We can take a look at like what type of content they produce. You know? The rise and fall of Harvey Weinstein. Okay. Blair White. Here's why other trans people hate me. These views are pretty low, actually. Uh, maybe we'll go to Ben Shapiro's personal channel. It's trying to be more fair, but... We have a bunch of clips from the uh, Kasparian debate. This is why Democrats are targeting Facebook. Biden doesn't give two dams about norms. Shapiro explains his theory on why America is so divided. Kirsten Cinema harassed. Is a new civil war coming? TikToker reads insane leftist children's books. Shapiro reacts to confusing pronouns. Shapiro reacts to transgender TikTok song. Lol. TikToker says Trump ruined the American flag.
Then we have the Young Turks. Sinema continues ignoring constituents. Anti-vaxxers boo Lindsey Graham. Republicans call for a holy war. Steve Bannon, I want shock troops. Wow, look at that. It's almost entirely like coverage of news events and politicians. Whereas Ben Shapiro's thing is flooded with, like, reacting to 14-year-olds in makeup. When we're talking about who perpetuates the culture war, it is overwhelmingly, sensationally driven by the right. Uh, and the reason for that is because the right does not have uh, uh, any real solutions to the problems we face right now. They don't have any real policy prescriptions. Uh, they know that their constituents have problems, uh, but rather than address those directly, which would require backing off their positions, they divert their attention towards culture war issues. Isn't Ben's channel right now 50% making fun of TikTokers? Look at the views. Biden, theory on why America's divided. Biden again, about 100,000 views. Here's the TikTok stuff. 3.1 million. 300,000, 600,000, nearly 400,000. Ben Shapiro's audience speaks for what they care about. And it's not real politics. It's culture war. One that both sides have to take blame for. I think that both sides certainly engage in manufactured culture wars, and it's frustrating to see it. Um, full disclosure, I myself uh, have engaged in it, and I think instead of being oblivious or delusional about it, um, it's important to acknowledge when you've made the mistakes, right? And so the demonizing doesn't help. Uh, at the end of the day, we have to realize that we're all Americans. We all want the same thing. Fundamentally, we are the same. We might have different solutions, different ideas. Demonizing the other side doesn't help uh, to accomplish any solutions. Again, we're seeing... I completely disagree. I massively disagree with this framing, 100%. Uh, she actually should have dared Ben Shapiro to show which videos had the most views on his channel, you know, like in the, in the past month or so. I think that it, like, I don't, I don't know how much she, like, knowledge she went into here with, but I feel like, yeah... I think she's trying to appeal to normies. Well, you have to hold to your principles, right? She can be like, no, we advocate for policy positions we care about, and we defend the minority groups we care about. Conservatives outrage bait and make shit up about them because they have no real solutions to real problems. Seeing that play out in real time as we speak, um, I think that there's a market for the division, and that market is being exploited by our media, it's being exploited by politicians, um, and, I mean, Facebook is in the news today. I think that Facebook, uh, you know... Remember when Ben Shapiro's solution to uh, racial income inequality was for black people to try harder? Yeah, we have some very serious takes from very serious people with very serious policy prescriptions being put out here. Very, very intellectual, high, like good faith, high effort contributions to the uh, political discourse being made here. It makes money based on engagement, and people are engaged in the constant conflict. Um, so it's important to be honest about what the real threats in society are. I think it's important to focus on why it is that you know certain industries, including the media, um, engage in this culture of division. Um, and we ought to talk about how the incentives are in the wrong place. I mean, there are no incentives to engage in you know, friendly conversation or friendly debate. I hate that my chair keeps, you know, and I'm short, so I'm trying to Maybe figure out how to do this. I, don't know. I hate turning my back to people. Um, here, I'll just do this. I'll sit on the very edge. Um, but, you know, we got to be aware of why it is that people engage in the divisive rhetoric that they engage in. There's a profit motive behind it oftentimes. I see it play out in the media. It's really, really hard not to fall victim to it myself, right? But when I take a step back and I look at where the country is right now, it's shameful. 
You know, we don't see each other as fellow Americans. We don't see each other as even fellow colleagues or workers in the workplace. Everyone has a political identity and that's it. And that's not helpful. I think the division in the country is incredibly embarrassing, especially on a world stage. And we've got to be more cognizant of that as we engage in political discussions. I certainly agree with an enormous amount of what, what Anna is saying about the, the nature of sort of the world that we live in, where people feel as though they are going to be ostracized socially. They feel that they might be fired, depending on their political point of view. Uh, they feel as though if they make comments openly, and this is true for pretty much everybody across the political aisle, actually, with the exception of people who consider themselves on the far left. According to a Cato study, basically every political subgroup in the United States feels uncomfortable speaking openly about what they believe, except if you're on the far left, because then you get to find people's old tweets and, and do that sort of stuff. Fine. Well, so, okay. All right. Cool. I don't care. What, what does that even mean? You feel uncomfortable? What happened to facts over feelings? If people feel uncomfortable to express their beliefs, that might not be a direct representation of their actual ability to express those opinions. But also, which beliefs? If far-right people are less comfortable expressing their positions publicly, that's probably for the same reason that incels aren't running around in public screaming at how they want rape to be legal. Like, there are reasons to socially disincentivize that behavior. Um, but the... the... You know, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I think that the culture wars are irrelevant. I, I don't. I think that, that many of the culture wars are, are highly relevant, and, and not just relevant, I think that they may be indicative of sort of where the country is going. Because the way that most people experience interactions with the government, uh, particularly the federal government or with politics generally, is not always based on tax rates or the very minute internecine debates that we have over $3.5 trillion bills that nobody knows what's in and then everybody just votes before they read the thing. Uh, a lot of the way that people engage in I politics... Can <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can, I'm sure we'll get into it. But the, the, I think that a lot of the ways that, that socially there, there's been a pretty strong push uh, from the left over the course of the last 10 years in particular, and it's driven a lot of reactionary resentments on the part of people who are on the right. And I would suggest that a lot of the... the that framing, you being progressive drove them. No, they were always reactionary. They weren't... They, 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 they're, the reactionary right is reacting because things are getting more progressive, sure, but that's because they were always there, reactionary. It's, they're not a product of uh, progressivism. If that was the case, then more people would be made anti-gay marriage when gay marriage was made legal. But that's not true. In fact, support for gay marriage increased significantly after it was made legal. Normalizing progressive stuff actually makes more people more progressive. The reactionary base was always there. It's not like if you went back 20 years and talked about trans people, people would be less transphobic then because they hadn't been made transphobic by progressives, you know? The support for President Trump, for example, was driven by precisely that. It wasn't just about his economic program, which differed from sort of the traditional laissez-faire Republican economic program. A lot of it was about the idea that he was a culture warrior who was going to punish enemies and, and, and all of this. And so to pretend that the culture war either doesn't exist or that people are making it up in their imagination or that they are overestimating the impact of it on their life is to ignore how people are being treated in the spaces that they treat with every day, on Facebook, on Twitter, in the workplace. I mean, one of the reasons that my family and I left California is not just because of the living standard, although Florida is way better, uh, it is also because you know, we, we left a place where we felt as though our children were going to be socially ostracized, for a place where we feel our children are not going to be socially ostracized, and that's a big thing. Yeah. No, I mean, you actually brought up a, a few issues that I agree with. Um, number one issue is the constant policing of people's past, what they've said in the past. I think holding people to uh, the current standards based on the current culture um, you know, if, if you're looking at tweets, for instance, from 2009, and you're judging that tweet based on what the current culture or the current standards are, it's a little ridiculous, right? So going around demonizing people based on their past statements, um, it, it shuts down a conversation that could be- So I, I don't buy into the framing here. While this is something that has happened, how often does this happen? Digging back to tweets from like 10 years ago, 
I've only heard of a couple of times. I've only heard of this happening a few times. Um, I think it's much more common that people get in trouble for stuff they believe and say now. J.K. Rowling got in trouble for stuff she believes and says now, you know? And yes, guys, this is slightly sped up. Quit typing about it. Uh, I know it's happened a few times. It happened with, what, James Gunn? But that wasn't progressives. That was, like, corporations. That was, like, Disney. It was from 2007. I know it doesn't not happen. It's just, I don't know the extent to which it does happen. We had, right, a conversation about, oh, hey, look, society has actually progressed on this. And, you know, look at what was okay. I mean, you, you have late night... Oh, that was Cernovich? Yeah, and James Gunn got his uh, job back instantly, yeah. Oh yeah, James, uh, Mike Cernovich was the one who dug it up, so that was conservative cancel culture. Hosts who were in blackface not too long ago, right? But the culture has changed. I think that, you know, society as a whole, not everyone, but society as a whole has realized, oh, well, blackface has a pretty terrible history, and maybe it's not a good idea to dress like that as like a cute little Halloween uh, costume. But beside the point, you know, I don't think that the culture wars are, are fake. I think the culture wars are taking place. The point that I'm trying to make is that oftentimes, whatever the culture war is of that moment, it is manufactured as a distraction. A perfect example will be, you know, critical race theory, which uh -huh. is not taught in elementary schools. Uh -huh. Critical race theory is a graduate level uh, curriculum. And the fact that it's turned into some weird, like, oh, we need to ban critical race theory in elementary schools, it's ridiculous. And Now, the thing she could do to really hit this one home is to point out that nobody talks about critical race theory anymore. That would be the thing. The, the, the thing to pointing out these are momentary distractions. You have to hit on the fact that they're momentary, that the concern for them isn't real. They just pop up and then disappear as the next issue is moved on to. Look at this. Look at this. This is a bump of about two months. For just a two-month period, people suddenly super-duper cared about the encroach of, uh, of, of a graduate-level legal theory being applied in elementary school. And then, eh. Like, yeah, it's just... Compare it to the ivermectin graph. I don't know if these will line up perfectly, but... I don't know, guys. What do you think the next one's gonna be? Yeah, these are all fucking pump and dump schemes, dude. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's this same also happens with Dr. Seuss in February. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. That one's gonna be from a little while ago, right? Oh, there's Dr. Seuss. Guys, Western authors are being canceled. Oh, never mind. It's been two weeks. Goodbye. This is like, this is every time, dude. It's all pump and dump shit, you know? Now, there is going, always going to be variants, but I bet if you look at Medicare for all. Jeez, like no traffic compared to these things. If we take a look at Medicare for all over the past five years. Wow, it's like nothing. What about M4A? It's not, it's, it's like nothing. Remove Dr. Seuss? Even if we remove Dr. Seuss, what if we, um, what are those Seuss spikes? They're yearly. It's probably, it's probably like book reading day or some shit like that. There's probably like a day for it. Um, or movie releases, maybe? Yeah. Here, let's, uh, remove the Dr. Seuss one. Yeah, it just, M4A doesn't even show up, man. 
Um, what's another one? Here, what about Green New Deal? Jeez. Man, was Ivermectin really that big? When would this have been? 2019? That was when it got put out. Had another spike over here. Jesus Christ. Put your name in there? Yeah, I don't need the ego hit. Thank you. Massive distraction that I think is intentionally meant to be a distraction from what people are really feeling frustrated about. The precariousness of their lives, of their work lives, uh, the fact that people feel overworked, that they have no control over the work that they're doing, that they feel alienated over the work that they're doing. These are very real issues, and I think that, you know, the fact that it's really largely been ignored by both the press and the very political leaders who were elected to represent them in the first place has led to the anger that we're seeing bubbling up both on the left and the right. Ben, I think you wanted to make a couple comments. Yeah, I mean, this will be a very quick note. I mean, I obviously disagree with you about critical race theory and whether it is taught in the public schools. Critical race theory, which I studied in law school, it started off as a legal theory, but it... I, I really do wonder if that's the case, by the way. Didn't Ben Shapiro brag about not learning anything from his law school teaching because they were all libs and he's a based tradcon or whatever? Here, I think, here, this is a better representation of the difference between a culture war bubble and a real issue. The blue is climate change. Obviously, it has its spikes, but it maintains, like, meaningful presence over long periods of time. Because it's an actual issue that people actually care about. As opposed to these, like, massive, just, like, media-inflated culture war talking points as an element of praxis and practice uh, that was meant to be implemented, which is why it is taught in education schools as well, and why- In elementary very, schools? Yes, though? a very boiled down, I mean, Ibram X. Kendi is, is preaching a very boiled down version of critical race theory, and his book is assigned in elementary schools. I mean, the fact is that when you are having elementary school students who are having to check off boxes- Ibram X. Kendi's book is assigned in elementary schools? Is that, has Ibram X. Kendi written any elementary school age books? Is it anti-racist baby? It might be anti-racist baby picture book, but this is a picture book. It's not for elementary schoolers. Green eggs and racism? Is that a real thing? Are you making fun of me right now? I have no idea. This looks like a baby book to me. One of these books is called Woke Baby, and it's like a little black baby with their arms up. You go, Woke Baby. All right, I don't care. ...with regard to their race, and then explain to each other whether they are historically privileged or not in fourth or fifth grade. That's, that's a very dumbed-down version of critical race theory. This is sort of a game that gets played with regard to legal theories that ends up being boiled down. Intersectionality is another great example of this. Kimberly Crenshaw writes a very intelligent law review article about intersectionality and how you can be a member of more than one minority group and be discriminated against in a variety of ways. And then that is used as the basis for a much broader move in American political life. And then as soon as you point that out, they say, well, that's not intersectionality. It's the original law review article. That's, that's a bit of no true Scotsman games playing. And so I've never heard anyone do that with intersectionality. Intersectionality is a fairly ubiquitous concept. It's not like critical race theory, which is based in like a lot of high level graduate concepts. You could explain intersectionality to like people of any age. I, I object to that. And, and I'm, look, it is a relevant issue when you have Terry McAuliffe, who's running for governor of Virginia, literally saying in open debate that it should not be parents who are making the educational decisions for their children. It should be the people in education. I mean, that, that, that is a culture.
Yeah. Yeah. I conservatives will never get this, but your children aren't your property, dude. Yeah. You you yes, absolutely. Your the educational curriculum of your state and country is clearly the presiding authority on what they get educated. Obviously. Parents don't know nearly enough to teach kids. They're not trained to do so unless they adopt training themselves. Very clearly. What he's really talking about is like, I should be able to take my kids out of school because I don't want them learning about gay people. He's pretty much explicitly said that. War issue that I think is of key importance to people who have kids, right? Well, see, I mean, I think that that's part of what leads to the lack of trust in our institutions. I mean, yes, as a parent, you get to make decisions about which school you want your kid to go to. If you're uncomfortable with a public school curriculum, you can take a look at private school options. Um, if you don't want that, you can homeschool. Uh, but who gets to be the, ar I mean, if we're talking about parents making those decisions, who gets to be the arbiter of, you know, which parent gets to be the arbiter of what gets taught in any particular public school? I I'm, I'm not really buying that they're learning about critical race theory or even a down for, I'm, I'm sure, I'm positive that, you know, elementary schools are not learning about systemic racism. And even if they are, uh, even if it's a boiled down version of that, learning about systemic racism is important. I think that that's something that's an issue in this country that uh, gets ignored or completely denied. And I think that's wrong. I think that's what also leads to the division that we're experiencing. Well, that's, right that's going to be the major cultural issue, right? Because the fact is that I, as a parent, believe that if you're going to... Do you think that, there's no systemic racism? I believe that it depends on how you define systemic racism. So if you're talking okay. about... Of course. Legal regimens of racism, no. Mm. If you're talking about history has after effects, of course. So I think there's a real problem with semantic overload in a lot of our political conversations. And when people say systemic racism, sometimes what they mean by systemic racism is history has consequences. You can't have 150 years of, oh, well, 300 years of slavery followed by Jim Crow and, uh, and that not have after effects, which of course is true. And sometimes what they mean is that every... Okay, that right there, with no ambiguity whatsoever, is Ben Shapiro explicitly admitting that systemic racism exists right there he just he just right there he just very clearly said yes as a product of centuries of Im uh, of bias imbalance of, of legal prejudice there will be a, a a a racial bias in our country that is systemic racism inequality in american public life is due to some systemic inequity that is currently taking place in the united states which i think is absolutely 100% no that's what you you, if you just said, if if the inequality exists now as a product of inequality that existed then, then the effects of the inequality now can continue to influence the inequality that happens next, right? So if bias then leads to bias now, that means you're acknowledging there's bias now. So doesn't that mean the bias that exists now is still acting? to produce bias that'll happen now? He had it, like, right there. It's literally, you, you, it's, this is like math. If, if former racism exists, then current racism exists. So if A equals B, so if, if A, then B, okay? We have B. And if current racism exists, then that will mean future racism will exist. That th there will continue to be the product, of the, it's the, this is, he just, he can't acknowledge it. He can't do it. That falls. I mean, we certainly see that playing out in our criminal justice system. Are, are you going to deny that? Or are you going to say that, let's say, African-Americans or Latinos are just inherently more criminal? Or I'm not going to say either of those things. I'm going right. to say that so as Right, so why are they overrepresented well, in our prisons? I mean, especially be, when you consider... This may be beyond the scope of our conversation, but the right. answer is because not all groups commit crimes at the same level. That has so not... why? So why do they not all commit crimes at the same level, Ben? 
nothing to do with genetics. It has right. everything to do so, with circumstances. Did you guys hold your thoughts on education? Because I do want to get back to some of that too. But no, 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 no. Why? Okay, if it's not genetics, then why? If it's if it's circumstances, then aren't those circumstances systemic racism? Now, actually, I think it's black culture and rap music. Okay, why do you think black culture leads to more crime than white culture? Well, I don't know. It, it's just more crime. More There's more crime there. Okay, do you think cultures are a product of the environment that you live in? Like the circumstances of your society might influence the cultural developments that take place afterwards? Yeah, sure, I guess I acknowledge that. Okay, so don't you think the systemic racism that black people have experienced for hundreds of years might have contributed to some elements of their culture that might still influence them today? Okay. That's systemic racism. Even if you reduce it down to the black culture argument, that's still an argument against systemic racism. It's just one that people often use to dog whistle genetic stuff with. Yeah, this is the Patrick Wallet thing. Move on to something else we talked about. Um, we talked about the trust issue, and there's some very interesting surveys out there on trust. Uh, Gallup did a survey. There's a drop across the board in trust in all institutions, except law enforcement, which is very interesting. Um, Congress... <laughs> Sorry what? for my friends there, is the lowest. Uh, media is down there almost as low as Congress. Those that rank the highest were. This feels relevant to the Ben Shapiro. Small business and the military. So, this low media rank, is that fair or is that being manufactured as part of a culture war? Uh, oh, it's fair. I mean, it's entirely fair. I mean, it, it's, I think that. One of the things that we've seen for both good and bad, the, the, the fragmentation of media is a result of systemic distrust in the media, and that's existed for a very long time, I and mean, that's nothing new. Uh, and I think that it's completely fair for people to look at the media. I know there are people on the left who think that the media is too right-wing. Right? Uh, obviously, we on the right think that, that the media is far too left-wing. Um, but I think that, that that sort of distrust in media sources is very often justified. I think that we're requiring more of people than we used to in the past, because once people have realized that there's an inherently political angle to how people cover the news, now we're asking them if you want a full, rounded diet, you actually have to choose it yourself. Right? You have to cultivate yourself to watch The Young Turks and then watch my show and decide who you agree with. And where there's sort of a common locus of fact, that's the fact and everything else is the opinion. That's asking a lot of viewers where we didn't used to ask very much of viewers at all, right? Just so this is, a common, this is a common thing people say, build a good media diet. It's not true, okay? You can consume media from 47 different sources and be a fucking idiot after you're done reading all the articles, okay? It's not about finding like a broad, diverse range of sources from which to get your information. It's about developing a good internal metric for discerning fact from fiction. And unfortunately, that media literacy isn't something that comes naturally to anyone. It's something that you have to work on. Uh, yeah, in fact, diversifying where you get your information from can make you even more partial to, um, to, to selection bias, where you're going to gravitate towards pieces of information from pieces of outlets that you like, you know. Uh, or to put it another way, guys, haven't you noticed that, like, every single propagandizing, like, conspiracy conservative out there brags about getting their info from a bunch of different sources? Like, whenever I hear that, the, like, yeah, dude, I read all this shit and get my info from all of it and find what I think is the most true, don't they always end up being the most disinfo-spreading pieces of shit? Um, it's really just about your media literacy. But if you guys, honestly, just want good, factual information that requires very little um, media literacy, it's AP and Reuters. That's it. Just AP and Reuters. Seriously. It's not going to tell you everything out there. It's not going to cover all the information. But if you want to keep up with what's happening in politics, yeah, AP and Reuters um, are, 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 are going to keep you well situated yeah al jazeera is good but i mean if you want the highest standard i'm pretty sure the associated press is about as hold on media ranks by 
trustworthiness. These are always like super liberal ways of determining. Media outlets. No, not the most trusted. What's the website that you look at? What's the website that, that you check? You, you know, there's like a there's like a website. And it gives them all in a big list and it's very pretty and it's good to show. Media bias fact check. Uh, I think that's not it. This domain might be for sale. This one for real? Okay, here we go. Uh, let me see. Donate, filtered search, what we do. Oh yeah, here's the damn thing that I was looking for. Jesus. You guys sure make this hard for me. This is the thing that everyone sees, right? Now, there is a bias here that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, I'm not saying that like everything here is correct or that I agree with all of it. However, I think most people agree that the Associated Press is pretty goddamn based. Pretty goddamn reliable. So if you just want like basic info, um, just keep up with those, okay? Here's an interactive version of that chart. What the fuck am I looking at? What does this have to do with anything? Oh, shit. There's the Jimmy Dore show! <laughs> Wait, hold on. Oh, there's Vox. Oh, man. Only a few of these are shown. God damn. My issue is with the Jimmy Dore show being on the left. Daily Beast over here. Wonket. More Wonket. Okay, so these are pulled from, like, various... Where's the tippy top? The Washington Post article here. Wall Street Journal. Associated Press, NBC News. Yeah, okay, whatever. Just turn on the evening news and buy whatever Walter Cronkite is saying, whether it's true or not. Um, I, I think most Americans waking up to that is a good thing. Uh, the systemic lack of trust in media has some bad downstream effects sometimes because when there are no gatekeepers, there are no gatekeepers. So I like the fact that there are no gatekeepers because I think the, the gatekeepers were very often biased, but without gatekeepers, sometimes bad stuff gets through. Yeah, I mean, I think that right now we're experiencing people existing in various filter bubbles. So uh -huh. uh, if you are, for instance, uh, consuming most of your news online, if you like a particular brand of programming, uh, if you, let's say, lean more conservative and you're watching mostly conservative news, algorithms offer up more and more conservative news. And so when you get a 
If you have preconceived notions and all of a sudden you're hearing or reading something that challenges those preconceived notions, you're gonna have a negative reaction to it. And you see that playing out across the board. I'll give you an example. I mean, I have family members who are constantly consuming news online. Um, my mom's a good example, right? She's, uh, you'd be surprised she's my mom because she's on Facebook. She clicked on a link to, let's say the Daily Wire, perfect example. Well, Facebook is gonna be offering up more Daily Wire type content. And then all of a sudden when she's watching The Young Turks, she'll be like, well, you know, I read on Facebook or I read on the Daily Wire, whatever, uh, that X, Y, and Z happened, and you're wrong, right? Um, that conversation doesn't actually happen that often. But I'm giving you an example. I was an hopeful example. there for a second. Right? Not a shoe. So, <laughs> so, look, there are all sorts of issues with the media, right? I mean, the, the media for the longest time completely ignored the very real frustrations that workers have been feeling in this country. I mean, the Federal Reserve released data indicating that nearly half of Americans can't even afford a $400 emergency. At the same time, you tune into CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, I mean, it doesn't matter, across the board, and they're like, the economy's doing great. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, record growth, and what they're specifically talking about is the stock market. But the stock market is disconnected from the reality that the majority of workers are experiencing. So I think that that type of stuff leads to uh, people feeling, you know, distrustful toward the press. At the same time, they exist in these filter bubbles and have their preconceived notions. It's hard to challenge that. So there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. I don't blame people for not being so trusting of the media. One other thing that I'll note is that the incentives are always in the wrong place. The kind of stories that I want to talk about on The Young Turks and do talk about on The Young Turks get no attention. They don't do well in terms of the number of views. I want to talk about international news. I want to talk about what's happening in Brazil. I want to talk about what's happening in Ecuador. It'll get like maybe 40,000 views at most. You know what gets a lot of views? I don't know. Anna Kasparian destroys this person. Or here's the latest cat fight. Like, I hate it. It's garbage. It's garbage. Because it leads to people not trusting the press, but at the same time, the profits are there. The money is there. And I think you see that play out across the board, whether you're talking about cable news or online media. Uh, yeah, and at the, at the dinner table, we're having an interesting conversation. It's clearly a generational thing. My generation grew up watching Walter Cronkite and uh, Huntley and Brinkley and all, and all these folks. And one of the things that I saw in your bio was that you got interested. I'm sorry. I know it'll be me one day, but goddamn boomers. Walter Cronkite. Oh, you, you don't know who Walter Cronkite is? You tell me you weren't cronking with the best of them back in the day? My God, man, you're missing out. You weren't you weren't out there with the Kronkster? Of course, you know, 30 years from now I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, there used to be this internet web host news guy called Sam Cedar that I really liked. And uh, you know, my kids are going to be like, "Oh, Sam Cedar." And that's all they're going to say. Uh, because they'll do, they'll be too busy texting on their phones. Because they're kids. ...interested in this field because of Barbara Walters. So, what happens now to the Barbara Walters? I mean, where does news reporting go? Are we gonna, will the nightly news be a thing of the past? And are we simply gonna continue to retreat to those mediums that, that demonstrate that we know everything already? Where's, where's this gonna go now? Well, let me just note, I, I loved Barbara Walters on ABC's 2020. <laughs> so I remember um, as a kid, you know, like getting super excited after TGIF was over because uh, ABC's 2020 would be on. And I, I was like fascinated by the fact that this woman was getting paid to talk to these incredibly interesting people from around the world. And I was just fascinated by the conversations. That's how I got interested in journalism and the media. But 
I just feel like the type of conversations that she had or Oh, Lonerbox. Uh your uh your vid on um your vid on Lauren Slaven uh fucking fucking slapped. It was so goddamn good. Lauren Southern the Boats. I felt like I was watching a fucking it says I haven't watched it for some reason, but I watched it Slothern. Yeah, true. Uh um this video fucking slapped, dude. Holy shit. I felt like I was watching an expose, like a like a vice documentary on one person being bad. 62 like you people never like my YouTube comments. I feel like my YouTube comments get ghosted in the algorithms. Like when I comment under a fucking video and I check back later a couple of weeks, like, because I rewatched the video or just am curious, it's like three likes and 17 people calling me a loser. Just news about world events, they don't seem to attract the kind of attention that they used to. And it might be because of an oversaturated market, it might be because conflict tends to sell, um, manufactured conflicts tend to sell, um, but it's... I wish we can get back to a place where journalism still really existed, where there was like ethical standards that were, you know, that reporters abided by, anchors abided by. I wish there was a clear distinction between opinion and actual hard news journalism. You know, this is what I talk about with my journalism students whenever I have the time to teach. Uh, I always tell them, I'm like, look, there's a difference between what I do, which is analysis, opinion, and what you should be doing as an investigative journalist, for instance, yes. you know, going out there and actually gathering the news, talking to both sides, not equating both sides and acting as if, you know, you're completely neutral, um, but making sure that you gather the facts on the ground and report them as they are. It's really hard to find that these days. There's still great journalism taking place. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do my analysis or my job without that great journalism taking place. Uh, but these are the people who are oftentimes not paid well, ignored um, and don't get any of the benefits that someone might in the media if you engage. Super true. Super fucked up, by the way, that I make like 18 times as much as your average fucking investigative journaler uh, in, 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 in like Thailand right now is working on a big story about like child sex trafficking or something. It's absolutely fucked up, you know? Um, did I say journaler? Oh, God, we really are entering the cognitive decline arc. Holy fuck. I can't believe I said that. Maybe we should just silently watch the rest of this video. ...in the conflict nonsense. Can we go back, Ben, and separate the fact-based from the opinion now, or is it going to be conflated for the foreseeable future? I mean, I think the truth is that that was a relatively modern construct. I mean, if you go back to the foundations of the Republic, the people who were reporting were also doing opinion, and that was true all the way through the beginning of the 20th century. It was really only with Walter Lippmann in the 1920s that he started talking about objective standards in journalism. And there's a difference between an objective standard that you apply to how a story is reported and being an objective reporter, meaning you have no politics at all. And I think, frankly, if you want to reinstall some sort of institutional trust, it would be good for reporters to say, here's who I voted for, and then here are also the facts that I am reporting on because otherwise it ends up being a gotcha, right? I see how you're reporting that. I see what you're doing. I know right. what you really think about the story. Uh, so that, that I don't disagree with Ben Shapiro here at all, actually. I think that anyone working in media should be incredibly forthcoming with, um, with all of their political biases. Uh, I think that that's, uh, we, we, as people who consume this media, we have a moral right to know, I think, um, because it can help us, uh, help inform us, make a decision about the content they produce.
That's a major issue. I think the other big issue, obviously, I mentioned gatekeepers before. Uh, I'm very wary of the reinstallation of institutional gatekeepers because if you want to talk about market incentives, the big players have all the incentives to ensure that they are the ones who maintain their access via the gates. Uh, and this is one of my great fears with some sites that we've been very successful with, like Facebook, is that reestablishing the idea that there are quote-unquote trusted news sources and those all coincidentally are legacy media sources yep. uh, means <laughs> that everybody who's not a legacy media source, somebody who started up a company in the last 10 years, right, we opened our doors in 2015, we're not legacy. Wouldn't doing so make half the people dismiss you before ever reading? Well, don't they already, kind of? Well, like, I, it's not like Fox News readers are, like, reading, you know, like, NBC, and then they're like, oh, this NBC journal, like, <laughs> journalist voted for Biden, never mind. I feel like people basically choose which platforms they consume when when we're not talking about, um, when we're not talking about new media. Um, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have to be, like, a law. It's just something we should normalize, you know? media and so we don't have that legacy so now you're shutting out all the players who are actually entering the market so you actually mentioned again just a little bit of a shift because you got my attention earlier you're both born and raised in california you left you stayed but we had an interesting conversation at the dinner table that maybe your perspectives on california aren't all that different ben i know you said you you were afraid your kids weren't going to be we're going to have a difficult time because of their political views so um are you sad you, that you left california or tell no, i have not thought for one day about that decision that was the it, it was <laughs> It was one of the best decisions that I have ever made for my family. Uh, we are overjoyed. Florida is a wonderful state. Uh, basically, oh. you know, because of my Orthodox Jewish faith, that means that I had to move to a place that had some significant Jewish resources. Uh, and so I was looking for a place that had those resources, uh, was in a red state, preferably with 0% state income tax. Uh, and that narrowed it down to basically <laughs> Dallas and Florida. Uh, and so we ended up in Florida. Uh, it's wonderful. But I mean, it wasn't just that. It was, the, it was really a lifestyle thing because my wife for years was saying, yeah, we're paying higher taxes, but you make a lot of money. So, you know, that's fine. But the problem is you don't get any of the public services back in California. So in our area, which is a fairly decent suburb, you had just an inundation of homelessness in the area. Like my kids could not walk around the neighborhood. We'd open up our front gate. There'd be a person shooting heroin in their foot, literally. That's a product of your policies, though. <laughs> what? With more social spending, we could fix those problems. That you you can't complain, dude. This is this is crazy, dude. I'm a conservative, and I'm so outraged that uh, not enough money is being spent in social services to address homelessness. That's so wild and crazy. Like, okay, do you want to fix that? in front of our house or a person passed out on the street uh, we had our business on ventura boulevard we had to board up windows during the during the george floyd you know some protests some riots uh the we we had you know the, the there were there was a homeless person who smashed the, the front plate glass window of our, of our establishment. When we left and we moved our main business to Nashville and then my family uh, and a small core of the business moved to Florida. When we left, uh, we thought that we were going to lose probably half the people working for us. Instead, I think over 90% of the people were like, you're going, get us out of here. Everybody wanted out. There's a reason people are leaving California. Well, Anna, uh, you, you shared some concerns too. And California, like Pennsylvania, uh, lost another congressional seat. So their population is not growing. Does anyone else think it's odd the only things that he was able to say about California were that there were homeless people and BLM? I mean, is that really it? What what is what do the tax dollars towards social services have to do with the BLM protests? You know, the existence of like progressive people and high taxes. I guess, yeah, high taxes. I mean, Florida's going to be underwater soon, so certainly not at the same rate as Texas, Florida, etc. So, share some of your concerns because you talked a little bit about it before. Sure. Um, so, California is poorly governed right now. Um, you know, I was pretty 
blunt and uh, transparent about the fact that I signed the petition to recall Gavin Newsom. So I signed it too. We were on exactly the same page before I left. Right. Uh, now, unfortunately, the individuals running against him were worse than he was <laughs> or is. And so, unfortunately, when uh, the ballot showed up to my uh, in my mailbox, I ended up voting against the recall. Uh, but I was uh, okay. So she was in favor of recalling Gavin Newsom, but then she saw the lineup of people getting ready to replace him, and then she was. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay, well, never mind. So she, she voted against the recall, but she supported the idea of a recall beforehand. I think that's totally sensible, 100% fair. Hoping that there would be a better candidate uh, to challenge him. I didn't like any of the candidates. Now, the reason why I've decided to stay in California is because I love the state. I know what the state is capable of, and I, I would much rather stay and fight to make the state better in any capacity that I have. Uh, but with that said, uh, the issue, I mean, the issues in California are endless. Uh, you have corruption. I mean, literally a, a city council member had his office raided by the FBI because of the pay-for-play scheme that he was engaged in. You have real estate developers running amok. Uh, you know, you have this effort to build public housing to alleviate some of the homelessness. But at the same time, you know, you have the uh, lawmakers in the state having like giving these sweetheart deals to developers who are very clearly inflating their prices and taking forever to build said public housing. So there's all sorts of mismanagement. I disagree with the way that they're handling the homelessness issue as well, although I think my solutions might be a little different. Um, I think that this idea of, um, you know, being incredibly laxed with camping um, has been pretty disastrous uh, and has attracted, um, it, look, homelessness isn't just a California issue, it's, a, it's an issue throughout the country. Uh, but when other states are pretty strict against uh, encampments and California is very laxed, what do you think that's going to do? It's going to attract homelessness uh, in the state as well. Uh, I want to provide housing for everyone. I consider it a human right. Uh, but I think the way that the state is doing it through a public-private partnership has not worked out at all. Thank you. So let's, let's move on to another pu public policy issue, one that's uh, being debated in Washington right now. Uh, tax the rich is a very popular sentiment. It's also now a fashion statement, I guess, which we've, which we've all seen. Um, so when President Biden looks into the microphone and says, pay your fair share, what does that mean? It means that if you're one of the 55 corporations that literally paid absolutely nothing in federal income taxes uh, in 2020, uh, and in fact received $3.5 billion in tax refunds or rebates, um, or tax refunds, I should say, uh, maybe you should uh, pay your fair share. But here's the thing, if the tax code is written in a way where corporations can legally take advantage of loopholes and incredibly low effective corporate tax rates, they're going to do it. Right? So it's one thing to say pay your fair share. It's another thing to actually write uh, a tax code that is uh, a little more equitable and ensures that everyone is, in fact, paying their fair share. Ben, let's pay your fair Ben. Okay, let's, let's get ready for Ben. Sing it to me, Ben. What is your opinion on this particular issue, Ben? I'd lambast him for moving to a state with zero state income tax, except for the fact that I live in a state with zero state income tax. So I feel like... <laughs> yeah. Fair share mean. I mean, the, the obvious answer would be a flat tax, but the, the, the longer answer is that the United States has one of the most progressive income tax systems on planet Earth. Uh, most of the systems in, for example, Northern Europe are far less progressive. The, the top tax rate kicks in a lot lower on the income scale because you have to pay for the large-scale social services. Uh, the, the people who are at the top of the income bracket in the United States, the top quintile essentially pays all net taxes in the United States. Not some, not most, all. And the reason for that... They also make all the money, so isn't that fair? Like, that, that seems fair to me. <laughs> He's like, hey, you guys want to make all the money? Okay, fine. You're going to pay all the fucking road repairs. Assholes.
that is because there are tax transfers, and the transfer of payments that are inherent in public services do not accrue to the people at the top of the tax bracket. They accrue to everybody else who is, who's receiving that sort of funding. When we talk about you know, higher taxes on corporations, we do- That must be so fucking hard for them, dude. Oh, God. Imagine being a millionaire, and when you pay the taxes that you were only able to pay with the wealth you were only able to accrue because of the hundreds and hundreds of people working below you, your money gets spent on services uh, that benefit them proportionally more than you. Except, wait, that's not true. Rich people travel more often than poor people, taking advantage of myriad social services, programs, institutions, and regulations that allow for them to do so. Wealthy people depend on the police more because they have more assets to protect, and they certainly depend on the federal government more because they have more proportional control over anything that goes down there through the lobbying and through the inaction of their business rights and through the just sheer wealth they have to sway public opinion whenever they collaborate with other institutions or just fund campaigns on their own. They also have the ability to hide more money as the... Recent uh, Pandora papers have made perfectly clear they are much, much better at hiding money uh, than uh, poor people are. You know, listen, we're not the same, okay? Ben Shapiro can hide his money in the Cayman Islands. Poor people hide it in a mattress. There's just, there's just no comparison. At the end of the day, the only reason modern civil society, including all the businesses that are built atop it, function is because the taxes that wealthy people pay allow for the standard of living their workers need in order to give them that money. I'm so sorry if you hate paying taxes, but without the education and roads they finance, you would have no fucking workers. Without the health regulations that they finance, your workers would keep dying. You need all these institutions to protect them because you built a castle on top of their bodies. Uh, there's just no getting around that. This is the bullshit that libertarian-esque figures... Now, he's not a libertarian, by the way, but he pretends to be, you know, and he's not talking about anything regarding degeneracy or the state regulation of industries he doesn't like. Uh, but when people who like to pretend they're libertarians talk about this stuff, they conveniently forget that the entirety of our business apparatus is predicated on investment in the working class. It is as simple as that. Unless you think Ben Shapiro could make all of the money that he makes without the government, uh, you know, having uh, essentially developed and laid out the infrastructure for electricity, roads, or the internet. You think he could have done that? You think without regulations uh, directly pertaining to uh, 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 the um, development of electronic goods or the facilitation of basic standards for utility and upkeep, he could have the wide reach that he does? Probably not, I'd bet. It's almost like everything is predicated on social services at a most fundamental level. All right, sorry, I'm getting... Not have one of the world's lowest corporate tax rates. We are somewhere in the middle. In, in look at the OECD countries, we are we are certainly not the lowest on the totem pole in terms of our corporate tax rate. In fact, you know, right-wing sources like the Heritage Foundation will say that it is much friendlier to do business in places like Denmark or Sweden in many cases than it is to do business in the United tax States. Tax rate's pretty high in Denmark and Sweden. <laughs> it is, the personal income tax rate is very high in Denmark and Sweden. The corporate tax rate is basically near or on par with that of the United States. If we were to raise our corporate tax rate the way that the President Biden is talking about, we'd actually have a higher corporate tax rate than China currently does. So the reason for this is because corporate tax rates actually aren't effective. We shouldn't focus on corporate tax rates. We should focus on, um, on income tax and uh, capital gains tax. So there's been research on this and corporate tax rates, whether they're paid or not, they're very easy to get around and it's just so easy to hide it or navigate it. It's just 
corporate tax rates aren't that effective. You want high capital gains tax and high income tax, which is what Europe has much more, uh, much more of than, um, than we do. Um, capital gains tax. If we take a look at Denmark, for example, their capital gains tax, um, here, look, here are the capital gains taxes, uh, that we can see, um, up and around the place. So you have lower ones, uh, like Spain and Britain, uh, which are here at 20, 23%, 2020 20 at Estonia and, uh, and, um, Lithuania. And the bottom one is Latvia. Uh, I remember that. Wait, or is it Latvia here, Lithuania here? No, this is Latvia, this is Lithuania. Latvia, Estonia. Latvia, Estonia. Thank you, sorry. Uh, and then higher ones over here. The U.S. capital gains tax uh, is... Um... Hold on. Twenty percent, and that starts at half a million yearly income. It's it's twenty percent, and that's the highest progressive tier. For the majority of people, it'll be around fifteen percent. So really, 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 really low. Uh, whereas you look at Canada, their capital gains tax is wow, fifty percent. Crazy stuff, right? Um, that's what you want to focus on: capital gains and income tax. Capital gains and income tax. And for full take, yeah, the um, the uh, income tax brackets in Denmark. Let me see real quick for individuals. I don't really know the specifics of how tax rates will work in other countries. The average Dane pays a tax rate at around forty-five percent. Jesus. That's a lot. And that's the average, not even the highest bracket. Well, anyway. Uh, the, the, the notion that corporations ought to be paying tax at all, in my view, is mistaken, given the fact that the income is immediately either reinvested in the company or passed on to people who immediately pay all no of that tax. No taxes at all. The, by the time you actually receive your income in this country, the, the income has been taxed about seven different ways. Right? You're getting taxed through the corporation, then it's passed on to you as salary, which is taxed. If you invest it in the stock market and then you sell your stock, that is taxed as capital gains tax. When you die, the government taxes that as well. So how many? That's not seven different ways. When you die... Oh, yeah, that's just, oh, yeah, dude, just my seven different types of taxes. There's the capital gains tax, the corporate tax, the personal tax, my death tax that I pay on all the money that I make because I'm dead. No, he's talking about it being taxed twice. The corporation gets taxed, and then when it's income to you, it gets taxed. Or if you uh, get paid in stock options, uh, you pay capital gains tax uh, when you sell those stock. That's it. It's taxed twice. Of course, there are infinite complexities at work here. But yeah, for the most part, those are the two taxes you're paying. How many times can you tax the same dollar before people begin to disinvest? Of course, the fucking Chamber of Commerce. Um, Let me, um... I'd like to respond to that, though. Okay, go uh, ahead. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Biggest lobbying group in the, the country. Uh, corporate tax rates in the United States are too high. Or that, you know... I mean, first off, let me just touch on the comparison you gave regarding uh, taxes, progressive taxes uh, in European countries versus the United States. I mean, yes, the taxes might be higher in those European countries, but what do people living in those countries get in return? They get incredible childcare. I mean, listen, uh, the average American family, two-income household, spends a whopping 22% of their household income on childcare alone, right? So 
when you're talking about European countries that but, offer quality childcare, that by the way, that opens up the opportunity for people to go to work, something that we should maybe think about as we're dealing with this labor shortage, 64,000 women left the job force in April alone. Not because they want to, but because they can't afford childcare. Everything in this country is privatized. Everything has a for-profit model. And there's consequences that come along with that, including for the business community that might want, you know, a more robust social safety net uh, program, social safety net to ensure that people feel comfortable enough to go to work, uh, but we don't have that here. So yes, people might pay more in taxes, including those lower on the income scale, but what they get in return is far greater than what people in this country have been getting. The United States has spent, since the beginning of the war on poverty, some $22 trillion in the war on poverty. We spend an awful lot on social services in this country on a per capita level. In fact, it is very much on par with what the European countries spend. It's just not spent particularly well. Uh, when it comes to things like childcare, uh, a very young Elizabeth Warren before Wait, I'm sorry. Does he think 22% of our income, of our taxed income is spent on childcare just poorly? What? She became Senator Elizabeth Warren specifically wrote about universal child care, and she said that it actually was contributing to what she called the two-income track in a, in a book that she wrote in the early 2000s. And what she talked about is the fact that there are a lot of women who, for example, may not want to work, and what you're actually doing is incentivizing people to have to go to work because you are now providing child care, as opposed to providing a competitive advantage to, for example, families where one parent is working. Uh, I agree with you, by the way. I would, I would eat my own arm if Elizabeth Warren was making an argument that the state paying for child care was actually anti-woman because it was pushing women into the workforce. I would eat, I would, I would, I would consume my body. That is be absolutely being, um, yeah, Elizabeth Warren used to be a uh, Republican. What's the name of the book? Oh, well, was this when she was a Republican? Or was this from more recent? Vosh capital gains on stock owned for um, less than one euro over 30%, 37%. Yeah, but that's not like, that. that's not, um. that doesn't really represent like what stock options are like for wealthy people, you know? St like super wealthy people aren't, their stock options aren't them making like quick fucking AMC gambling bets on Robinhood. They have like billions and billions invested in corporate stock that they hold on to for a long time. Elizabeth Warren's book, The Two-Income Trap Explained. Oh, a controversial book, I see. 2004. Was she a Republican back then? Up until 96? Okay. A certain strand of the American right has long expressed quiet admiration for the book because its thesis can on some level be boiled down to the idea that feminists were too optimistic about the implication of women's mass entry into the workplace. I guess I'll eat my arm. I don't know. I don't really care. Go ask people in Europe. Hey, do you want to... Do you want to get rid of your childcare services? So that you're not incentivized to work as much? Gonna guess they're probably gonna say no. Uh, think they like it, you know? It might be more nuanced book than that. It probably is. It's just a long article. I didn't... I don't want to interrupt the flow of things by reading all of this right now. Child care. That term, child care, is only used once in this entire article. Wait, does this even... Welfare doesn't show up once. What about this is even saying that we should... Okay, I... I, 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 I shut up. 
way that you know childcare is a very difficult issue. I also agree that this is why we used to have, for example, family structures that were conducive to allowing people to help out. We had we there, there are many businesses that do provide for some form of childcare. We certainly have many businesses many. that provide for some form of maternity or paternity. Many. The, the European countries, which obviously have been used as a model by by a lot of folks on the left, between 1970 and 1993, they experienced exorbitantly low rates of growth. And the reason for that was because they radically overburdened their social safety net systems. It created enormous social problems. It created enormous immigration problems. They had to scale a lot of those back. And what? Uh, according to research by the Society for Humane Resource Management, 11% um, of employers have a child care referral service. 4% of employers offer subsidized or non-subsidized child care centers or programs. Okay, so 4% of employers offer some kind of subsidy. Um, or, or direct child care center or program. Here, report, only 6% of U.S. Co uh, companies offer comprehensive child care benefits. Many. As opposed to, what, 100% in, uh, in um, Belgium? Or Denmark? Only about 40% of U.S. companies even offer paid mater uh, parental leave. Oh, paid uh, 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 paternity leave, sorry. 60% still don't offer paid paternity leave. What about maternity leave? 25% of offers, 35%. No, maternity. This is just California. Why is it giving me both parents? Okay. Over half of employers now offer paid maternity leave. Cool, so 45% of employers don't even offer paid maternity leave. But why, why would it create immigration problems? It created immigration problems because a lot of people were coming specifically for the benefits. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, that, that would be, that would be yeah. my point, which is it creates more yeah. problems very often than it's I mean, but, I mean, it, sure, I guess that's a... Yes, if your, I put a free donut sign in my shop, people will come for the... No, but if you have, if you have a robust... If you have a society that actually... And here's our public spending on early childhood care and education. The United States is way over here, third from the right, next to Cyprus and Romania, our close allies in many ways, you know? Uh, and all of it is being spent on, like, pre-primary care, uh, with basically none going to actual child care. And then over here is the EU average. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, Belgium, Israel, Luxembourg, Korea, New Zealand, Finland, Denmark, France, Norway, Sweden, and Iceland over here, uh, spending about 1.8% of their GDP on that stuff. Takes care of its workers, right? If you have a society that makes your life a lot easier, people are going to want to immigrate. It's part of the reason why, at so at you know, people wanted to come here. People are going to want to live in countries that have both economic opportunities, the, the but immigration, also the, the social safety net programs sorry. that, again, just make your... I mean, we talk about freedom. If you look at the World Freedom Index, okay, we like to think of the United States as the freest country. We're not the freest country. You look at that list, we're, like, pretty low down compared to a lot of these Nordic countries. Denmark is t top of that list. So, look, Denmark has a mixed economy. When we have these debates about, ooh, socialism versus capitalism, I think that those debates... What was the time period during which Ben Shapiro said immigration clogged up the, um, the, um, um, the social services? 1970s? Hold on. Immigration effect on European welfare states. What does immigration mean for European welfare states? 
I want to see if there's any, like, statistically significant relationship between the burden. The political economy of immigration welfare state support. Okay, here we go. An article from Cambridge.org. This article explores whether immigration plays a role in determining national welfare state effort in 16 European countries. It examines the relationship between stocks of migrants, the foreign-born population, on two different indicators of welfare states, well, uh, welfare state effort, social welfare, and welfare generosity. So where are the... The empirical results show that the foreign-born population had a positive and statistically significant relationship with social welfare spending and no statistically significant association with the welfare generosity index. These findings provide no evidence to support the hypothesis that the higher levels of immigration lead to reduced levels of social welfare provision. On the contrary, these findings lend support to the view that increasing immigration leads to welfare state expansion rather than retrenchment. Damn, dude, that's crazy. Who knew that immigration grows your economy, which grows your tax revenue, which grows the amount of money you can spend on welfare? He didn't say it was immigration, just that they offered too much during that period. He explicitly said immigration. He, he said that, uh, you know, uh, if you offer, uh, if you put a free donut sign out of a donut shop, then that will bring more people in. He was saying that this is a common conservative argument that welfare states will draw in the third world who will leech off of us, you know? Um, there might be more nuance to this, but immigration's not the issue here. Debates are a little ridiculous because every country is a, well, not every country, but most countries are mixed economies. Yeah, right. The United States right? is a mixed economy. Mixed, sure, sure, sure. Exactly. Yep. Now, the, it, the issue with the United States is there used to be a time when Isn't public universities doctor, were free, yeah. right? You didn't have to dig yourself into a massive hole to get an education. There was a time in this country where there was universal child care. That was cut down to the point where it's like no longer in existence unless you're desperate and have like no money and need to take advantage of some programs that are available in some states. But my point is like we have an issue here where on one hand, you know, we're experiencing a labor shortage. We want people to go back to work. On the other hand, people literally can't afford the childcare necessary in order to put their kids in a daycare, put their kids in childcare and be able to go to work so the, the, without the, their entire paycheck. The Biden, bill, the Biden bill removes many work requirements for many of the payments that are being made to people and it's incentivizing people not to go back to work which is why we have 10 million open that's jobs in the United States and people not coming back that's to work. Not, that is not what that bill does. In fact, that's not what that Let bill does. Are you talking on. about the, right, uh, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation I'm talking about the $3.5 trillion bill. The $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill offers removed. universal pre-K which opens up the opportunity for mothers to go to work if they want to go to work. The $3.5 trillion bill, by the way, has all sorts of subsidies for corporations, which I don't really understand why the business community isn't salivating over that, because rather than just going full force with public programs, which I think would be the right way to go, it's offering all sorts of subsidies uh, in these you know, public-private partnerships. Now, the physical infrastructure bill has a lot more corporate giveaways, which is why the you know, business community absolutely loves it, offers the chance to private... Broader support for families. Uh, uh, multiple measures here. Budget calls universal pre-K program for three and four-year-olds. Good. New child care benefit for working families. $200 billion invested in universal preschool for all babies. Um, through a national partnership with states. It benefited about 5 million children. Saved the average family 13000 when fully implemented. It'd be fully accessible to families of all income level. Uh, no means testing. Chad move. Uh, but states would be required to foot about 50% of the cost when the measure is fully up and running. Enhancing child care for working families. Under Biden's proposal, low- and middle-income households would pay no more than 7% of their income on child care for kids younger than age 5. 
uh, 7% of a median income, like, let's say you're poor and you're making 30,000 a year as a family, or, yeah, so that would be, um, 3,000 is one-tenth, so what, 2,400? 2,300, something like that per year? That's very little compared to what people uh, pay right now for, um, for childcare. Childcare is incredibly expensive. Um, yeah. Parents earning up to 1.5 times the median income and in their state would qualify. Damn, that's not very means tested at all. 1.5 times the median income, so you can you can be 50 percent above the middle of the of the road, you know, and still um and still qualify for that support. Um, and then of course we have two years of tuition free community college. The blueprint asks to create the first federal paid and medical leave benefit. The American Families Plan calls for giving workers a total of 12 weeks. By the way, this is what uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are keeping from you, by the way. Everything we're describing is just a fraction of the bill that they're keeping from you. Um, uh, plan calls giving workers a total of 12 weeks of guaranteed paid parental, family, and personal illness slash safe leave by the 10th year of the program. Uh, child tax credit. Uh, yeah. To literally be like one of the one of the biggest revitalizations of our welfare state in um in modern history. I don't know what here is preventing people from working. Public infrastructure, which is why the business community absolutely loves it. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we don't create a Elizabeth Warren said that women joining the workforce will drive up the cost of child care and the government should start universal child care. Don't eat your arm yet. OK, I won't eat my arm. Thank you society where Americans can actually have families and go to work, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So to go back to your immigration point, you made a um, mention a moment ago of people immigrating to the country for the benefits. That's just right. abjectly untrue. The fact is that the United States' great immigration growth throughout the beginning of the Republic, all the way up through about 1930, was entirely driven by people who were leaving places that in many cases had broader benefits, places like Germany, to yeah. come to the United States where there was no social safety net. The fact is that the vast majority of people who used to leave and come to the United States were coming specifically to build a life knowing that they really didn't have a lot of social safety net. Now, that's not an argument that there shouldn't be some state and local what? Wait, I'm sorry. I I don't know what the social safety net was in 1830s Germany and 1830s America. They didn't I don't think there was any such thing as a social safety net anywhere. I don't think I don't think the welfare state really existed back during those immigration booms. I, I don't think these concepts really existed in the way they do today. I think they came here because we had job opportunities, because we were a young and growing country. Germany didn't exist in the 1930s. Oh, the Germanic tribe, we had the Germanic region. We had a, a big influx of Germanic uh, immigrants back during that time period, who uh, I think Ben Franklin was very racist towards. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I think they came here for the job opportunities. This has nothing to do with the welfare state possibility for social safety net. But the notion that the way that you build a successful country that is a world power and is capable of not only making sure that the citizens are taken care of, but essentially making sure that the entire Western world is taken care of, which we did throughout the Cold War, the idea that you do that simply by raising the number of social security payments that you're making to people or benefit payments that you're making to people, that this is the way that you build that sort of economy, is just non borne out by empirical Okay, we've had a That's real far-ranging conversation. Yes. Ben, let me ask you another question. <clears throat> Our organization is one that on a... Has he gotten the last word on every single topic? I feel like He's gotten the last word on like three and he's interrupted her to to like finalize the word.
I could be misremembering out of bias, though. I, I don't know. Daily basis supports whatever you want to call it, the free market system, system of uh, economic choice. It was disturbing to me, and I think to our organization, when the National Education Association uh, looked at a resolution, I believe it passed one of their committees, that called the free market system one of oppression, but didn't call out other totali totalitarian regimes. So. We live in America, dude. Why would they temper their statement by including, like, Adolf Hitler? Like, oh, we think the free market system is authoritarian and oppressive. We also think Hitler was bad. What are you talking about? What are we... Did they supposed to talk about Venezuela? We're talking about what's happening here in America. What other economy are we supposed to be impugning here, apart from the free market system? What does it say when our educators don't seem to believe in the free market system? Well, I mean, obviously, I love this question. Wait! They didn't say they didn't believe in it. They said they thought it was oppressive. Believing in something, whether or not you do or don't, that can imply a million different things. That's a super fucking loaded question, dude. Holy shit. So uh, I, I will say that the, the National Education Association is a very far left group. And so it's not a particular surprise that they're ca characterizing uh, freedom of the market in, in that particular way. It also goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about what sort of control parents should have over the education of their own children. There's a reason I send my kids to private school. Uh, the, the notion that they cap... But haven't, hasn't there also been some hubbub as private schools have also been introducing? Like, wasn't there that one incident we looked over where a private school had those kids taken out because they were teaching like CRT related stuff or whatever? but it was actually just like acknowledging that racism exists. They never really were specific with what CRT stuff was being taught. I'm pretty sure that private schools, like depending on which ones you go to, they can still be, you know, Capitalism is a system of unfreedom. Well, government largesse is a system of freedom ignores the fact that somebody actually has to pay the bills. It also they ignores never the fact said that, that all growth, not some, all growth that has ever happened is a result of capitalism, meaning it is the result of What? All growth that has ever happened. Wait, are, he, he didn't say in the United States, just forever? All growth that has Dude, yeah, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, fucking uh, Mesopotamian Empire, Mali, the Roman Empire, you know, it's just, they were ahead of their time. Ahead of their time. This is, uh, this is one of those talking points that uh, is the reason why nobody should ever take Ben Shapiro seriously. He is a proselytizer for the free market. Uh, it's a faith-based advocacy for him. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is like a, a delusional statement to make. Um, even if you take a look at capitalist like the capitalist countries that exist today, uh, no, government investment and government research are huge drivers of growth especially military research, a ton of stuff from universal utility expansion to laying down roads and highway projects to developing public transportation to the internet to radar, sonar, TV development, the entire modern information age is born out of government spending. The idea that everything everywhere is from the free market is ridiculous, especially since even when companies uh, do produce goods and services on their own, they do so through government regulation. Government regulation tempers everything produced by the so-called free market, meaning that even when we are talking explicitly about things private businesses do and produce, they're still being shaped by the behavior of the government. And find me any example anywhere on earth right now of corporations doing a great job with no government regulation. You won't find any.
because corporations without government regulation are feudal uh are, are feudal masters they stop becoming corporations they uh they essentially become replacements for the government free market transactions in which people consent to services and goods from other people, in which people innovate and make new products. There's a reason that we're not still riding horses and buggies around. That is because of innovation. It's because of incentive structures. It's because people get to keep the fruit of their own labor and then use those fruits of their own labor in order to- uh, People get to keep the fruit of their own labor. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> to invest in things. The, the true growth in the American economy was never just a question of dollars and cents. It was what you got for those dollars and cents. All of that is driven by entrepreneurs who are willing to take risk. And when you disincentivize risk, you end up disincentivizing people from taking those risks. Who's disincentivizing? This is like a, um, a, 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 a this is like a pre-built argument that he has like written down on a note card in his brain that has been activated by somebody mentioning the free market. This has absolutely nothing to do with what the Teachers Association said, which was that the free market is an oppressive institution. That's it. He's not even arguing against that premise. He's off on his own world. As we become a much more wage-based society, and that, that has happened for a large segment of the population, that means that you are incentivizing people to not take those risks. And, and countries that don't have people taking those risks end up being countries that economically stagnate. Yeah. Yeah? So. Those are the ideas that actually, funny enough, um, have been repeated over and over again in our education system. The idea that, you know, children or students in this country are taught that capitalism is evil is, is new to me because I certainly did not get that type of education. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, you know, freedom is an interesting way of framing it because the fact of the matter is if you are financially stable, island. if you are, you know, in the top 10% of this country, for instance, you probably feel incredibly free. You have options, endless options available to you. You probably have a nice nest egg. You have a little bit of that economic freedom. But, you know, there are two different things at play. Number one, well, when you look at what is incentivized under capitalism, it's actually led to a lot of our own civil liberties being violated. For instance, data collection that takes place on a regular basis without our own knowledge by these uh, social media companies, by these tech companies who make their money not off of advertising, for instance. They make the majority of their money off of selling our personal information. To I while I don't disagree with anything she's saying, I really think she needs to lead with the point that public investment, infrastructure, and uh, research are the bedrock of pretty much everything corporations take credit for in this country. It's really important to set that out because Ben Shapiro's ludicrous statement that the free market fixed, like, produced all growth ever, uh, it needs to be challenged directly because it's insane and it's very, very easy to debunk with even a little bit of thought. I think you don't want to run down tangents. You have to hone in on the weakest point here to data brokers. It's part of the reason why there are infinite websites right now, uh, so-called data brokers, that just sell our personal information, including where we live, what our phone number is, where we've worked. Um, I don't really feel very free when I'm terrified about my own safety because there's a you know company that's literally making money off of selling my personal information. So there are certain uh, incentives under capitalism that actually do infringe upon our civil liberties and our rights. So that, that's one thing that I want to note. But the other thing I want to note is, how free do you feel if you're on the precipice of financial ruin if you can't afford uh, paying for a medical emergency that you're experiencing? What do you do when you don't have health insurance, which tens of millions- Yeah, with respect, she's, this, is, this is tangential. She's not addressing the broader claim that the free market is responsible for everything good forever, and is instead talking about how, like, there are still problems with the free market. But Ben Shapiro is not going to disagree with that. Um, like, Ben Shapiro would agree with this. And his answers are going to be like, uh, if you don't like data collection agencies, then, you know, don't use them. And also, if there are people who can't afford shit, then maybe they should have made better life choices. Like, nothing that she's saying right now challenges the fundamental framework 
billions of Americans right now don't have because of the exorbitant prices associated with it. How free do you feel if you're a wage worker who has not experienced your real wages increase in literally decades? Wages have not kept up with inflation. So how free do you feel when you want to leave your job but you can't because your health care benefits are tied to that work or tied to that job. I mean, freedom, again, is an interesting way of framing it because I would venture to say that there's a significant portion of the population in the United States, significant portion of workers in this country that do not, in fact, feel free, in fact, have uh, experienced the precarious nature of a capitalistic system that forces them to work endlessly, if they're lucky, in a full-time job, if they're unlucky, in several part-time jobs that they cobble together with no benefits just to make ends meet. Let, yeah, let me give you 30 so, seconds because yeah, I want to move on something thing. with that. I, I'll just say I think that there's a bit of a definitional game that, that, that's very often played with the, the word freedom. Freedom obviously has two separate meanings. Isaiah Berlin talked extensively about the difference between positive liberty and negative liberty. Hey, you can't acknowledge the difference between those two. That's how you get your ass clapped cheeks. Cheek clap clap. That's how you get your ass blasted. You're, you, you have to pretend they're the same thing. What you're talking about are things that people need and things that people want, and that is not the same thing as liberty. I'm talking about... That is not the difference between positive and negative freedom, Ben. Positive freedom is not when you have the things you need, and negative freedom is not when you have the things you want. That's... Not... Never mind. Okay. People need. People need health care. I, I don't disagree that people need health care, but to characterize that as a freedom is a very different thing. If the, if the goal of the government is to provide you the opportunity to seek things, Right, then, then that is not the same thing as the government providing those things to you directly. Nor is it the, nor is it the same thing as the government seizing that thing from one person and giving it to you here. To, to, to characterize it as freedom is a real mischaracterization. Again, I'm happy to discuss whether or not we should change the programming here, but I think that the, the sleight of hand that's played by equating freedom of speech, for example, or freedom from being murdered on the street, uh, or, or freedom to, to dispose of your capital as you see fit, to, to, to characterize that in the same language they would use to discuss why you need a house, uh, that's, that's, it's, it's a different thing. Yeah, the difference is that the latter one is much more important. The freedom to live in a, in a shelter is infinitely more important than your freedom to not have the government tax you. Like, the funny thing is, is that this is this is what I mean. Um, ben Shapiro is concerned only with um, only with negative freedom, only with this is the big thing with 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 capitalists, I think uh, he's only concerned with negative freedom. He's only concerned with is anyone stopping me from doing what I want? Um, is 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 are there any institutions doing to me things I don't want? Is the government taxing me? Are there laws preventing me from dipping my balls in pudding uh, when I go to parties and then running away? Uh, that's what he cares about, the balls and the pudding. But positive freedom is the ability to do the things that you want, not whether or not anyone's keeping you from doing it, but whether you have the ability to do it at all. So I've said this before, is a man free if he's left in the middle of a desert with no state and no laws? and no clothes, no food, and no water. Is that person free? Now, in a negative freedom sense, that person is actually as free as any human being can be. There are no institutions whatsoever that are weighing on him. Nothing is preventing him from doing what he wants to do. But in a positive sense, he is free only to die. Now, he can sacrifice negative liberty for positive liberty. For instance, by having a government and a police force, he can have things like murder and rape made illegal. Uh, he can also have provisions given to him as a product of his citizenship, uh, where he is given food and water. Now, in doing so, he'll have to pay some taxes. That is a loss of negative freedom. He has to expend something. Something is being taken from him. 
but to trade, he's getting the freedom to do what he wants, which is to live. Does that make sense to everyone? The difference between negative and positive freedom is the fundamental difference between accepting socialism and uh, staying in liberalism with regards to how we understand. Actually, it's not really a socialism-liberalism divide so much as it is a libertarianism as opposed to like welfare divide, I think. Uh, I believe in positive freedom. We should be able to do as many things uh, uh, as we want, you know? But if you want negative freedom, you can go visit like Syria or Libya, you know, if you really want. There aren't any laws or institutions to prevent you from doing things. Sure, people might kill you, but that's their freedom. If you told them not to kill you, that's a uh, redressal of their negative freedom. So have fun. In reality, positive freedom is what defines happiness more so than anything else. Kind. It's apples and oranges. Yeah. So uh, let, okay. let me just quickly. Okay, go ahead. I want to ask you a question. Point, go ahead. Go ahead. Because, uh, you know, this idea of taking something from one person and giving it to a, you know, the redistribution issue, which I think oftentimes is uh, framed inaccurately. You know, when we talk about redistribution of wealth, I mean, look at the amount of money that gets invested by our federal government in the form of research and development, whether we're talking about pharmaceutical companies or even companies like Tesla. The seed money from Tesla did not come from private investors. In fact, the same year that Obama's administration invested in the failed Solyndra project, they also invested the same amount into Tesla. And guess what? Tesla ended up being a massive success. The only downside to it, though, is that now you have Elon Musk, who's whining and crying about having to pay his fair share of taxes, when during the pandemic he became, for a brief period of time, the richest man literally in the world, right? So we I agree offer, with you about subsidies, by the way. Right. Yeah. So Welcome to libertarianism. <laughs> so look, but look, those investments need to be made. That research and development needs to take- Now, so this is another bullshit talking point from Ben Shapiro. So the counter argument that people like him will make is, um, well, actually, that doesn't count because there were government subsidies, which has nothing to do with the point that she's making right now. Literally nothing whatsoever. Ben Shapiro wouldn't have an issue with any of this if it was a, uh, like a private investment. The argument is, does government inv like involvement promote like market growth and just general economic well-being? And the answer in the case of subsidies is that they do so all the time. This little jab about how, ooh, libertarian, by the way, has nothing to do with, yeah take place because private investors are not willing to take the risks necessary. It's true. That, that is, that is I mean, fundamentally untrue. The federal government's research and development is what led to the internet. I mean, it's a huge part of it. The, the fact Look, that the government is a grab bag of cash does mean that the government will eventually invest in some things that are worthwhile. It will also invest in an awful lot of enormous piles of crap. Okay, right? gotta, I mean, the fact is, if you don't bear the risk got, of the downside, you're going to make a lot of bad investments. We've got a few more questions, and I want to get... You're really letting him have the last word again? Holy shit. That is such a bad argument. It's not that they have a lot of money. You know what else has a lot of money? Multi-billionaires. It's not about them having a ton of money. It's about them investing it in the common good, like roads and infrastructure, like passing utility bills to make sure that electricity is wired across the country, which private energy companies were not willing to do. The government had to do it. The government had to subsidize it. All of this isn't just the government having money, so of course, randomly, sometimes they produce good things. It's the types of research and investment that only a non-commodified system can meaningfully invest in. Only an institution not looking to make a profit can do things like spend hundreds of millions expanding electrical uh, wiring and roads across the country. Yeah, this debate is incredibly biased. This moderator is so clearly favoring Ben Shapiro with where they decide to cut this off.
get through and we've got four and a half minutes. So, Anna, you had said earlier, comment about education that people can choose to send their kids elsewhere. We are an organization that firmly believes in education choice. And we've got a lot of kids of in this state and others that are sentenced to underperforming schools solely by virtue of their zip code. Mm -hmm. uh, we tell families in this commonwealth, um, that's your school. We would never tell them that's your supermarket, that's your doctor, that's your dentist, you get to choose. Because, and a lot of that, to be blunt, is because of the collective bargaining agreements with tenure teachers and how much you pay. Can we really get to, to educational choice? Because a lot of these p parents can't afford to send their kids somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Can we really get to that real education choice, given the current state of collective bargaining in this commonwealth and yeah. in this country to a large degree? Yeah, absolutely. This is such a fucking loaded question. Oh, yeah, those yeah greedy teachers are making it so your kid can only... The reason we don't have school choice is because it would lead to even more money being torn. Okay, if you want to fix these problems, then stop tying school funding to their fucking zip code property taxes. That's it. That It's as simple as that. Because the reason why they're afraid to let school choice be a thing is because parents who have the ability to drive their kids farther, either because they have their more they have more money or they're in like a base triad trilocule where they have the extra partner who can drive for an hour and a half every day, regardless of the circumstances, that a lot of parents will pull kids out of their local underfunded schools and send them over to better ones, leaving the, the school that is still sitting there in their neighborhood even less funded. Their solution is literally, what if we just abandoned the worst schools and packed them all into overcrowded good ones, therefore objectively lowering the quality of those schools? And by the way, Pipers in chat, if you think the year after school choice is enabled, uh, conservatives will throw a shit fit of all the poor Hispanic and black kids being piled into uh, wealthier, whiter school districts as their parents desperately try to find a better education for their child. Tell me they're not going to do the same fucking shit they did back during busing where they complain that the quality of their school is being brought down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. This isn't something they actually care about. They just want to divert attention away from the real solution, which is properly funding these schools and ending the current system of school funding that we have. It's as simple as that. This is not something they really want. Like, I don't want smudges on my glasses. No real solutions, just distractions. I'm going to say something that's incredibly unpopular with this group, and that's totally fine. Uh, the best education in the world currently takes place in Finland. Uh, they have the top education model, and uh, they have completely banned private education. I would do the same. Okay, so, uh, first of all, Finland is not the United States, and there, there's a... What? 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 Okay. A frequent attempt uh, that, that it does happen a lot where people will take something that has worked in Sweden or something that's worked in Norway or something that's worked in Finland and they'll say, what if we just take that and import it here and it'll work exactly the same way? Uh, and it typically does not work. Uh, the fact We don't do it, though. Wait, how do you know it doesn't work? We don't do that. We say we should do that. When was the last time we actually saw a program in Europe and then we, that worked well over there and then applied it here and it didn't work? H how would you know if we haven't tried it? is that, that Finnish Americans make more money in the United States than they do in Finland, for example. They have longer life expectancies in the United States than they do in Finland. It's true. Swedish Americans, it's true. Nordic Americans. Life expectancy what, in... What, what does that have to do with anything? Immigrants from Europe have a higher standard of living here in the U.S.? No shit, they're immigrants. Only wealthier people from Europe are going to move over here to start a new life in a new country. Poor people are going to be trapped in their own country because moving is expensive. What does that have to do at all with the Finnish education system. What a complete fucking misdirect. What a slimy and deliberate effort to avoid directly addressing the central problem. 
Remember, Ben Shapiro doesn't care about solving any of these problems. To him, the fact that Finland has a better education system is some kind of existential quirk, if it exists at all, relevant only to Finland. The idea that we can learn lessons from other countries and apply them here is alien to his mind. Conservatives do not think that way. In Finland is much higher than the United States. No, you're correct. Hold on, States, hold on. It's hold only 78 years, no, which is, by the way, comparable Anna, to Anna, Cuba. Anna, 78 Anna, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. You're correct. The life expectancy in Finland is longer than the life expectancy in the United States. That's not what I said. I said the life expectancy for Finnish Americans is longer oh, in the it. United States. That is an apples to apples comparison as opposed to comparing completely different populations. They're and not relevant. What does that have to do with the United school? States has an incredibly diverse population, and that diverse population encompasses an enormous number of people who have very different beliefs about how education ought to be done. Is he seriously making the Finnish education is better because they're not as diverse as our? Oh, he is. Yeah, he's actually making that one. So rather than so rather than addressing why Finnish education is better, he's just gonna like wave his arms and go like, "Oh, America's got I don't know a lot of different people, and I don't know it wouldn't work. I don't know." To suggest that any national standard of education is going to not only please all of those people but prove to be successful in such a nobody said it would please all those. What? When did she say she could? implement a new educational system that would please every single disagreeing group in this country. What, what is he even referring to? Which different groups? Political groups? Racial groups? Ethnic groups? What is he even referring to? He doesn't mean anything. He's just moving away from the actual topic. A wide variety of circumstances for some 330 million people. We've tried this with a gradually, not gradually, radically increasing federal education budget over the course of the last 30 years. And what we've got is failing public schools all over the United States. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about banning private schools. That's not the things that we're talking about, right? That's not a real, there's not, that's not the thing we're talking about. Except in specific local areas where there have been attempts to take back control locally. Mm. I'd love to see more local, uh, more localization. And frankly, I'm quite pleased that if COVID had one decent effect, it was more people taking their kids out of the public schools. Okay, I want to... We got two minutes. Again, the moderator gives him the last word. Every single time, dude. So I don't, before I get in trouble, so let's let's go real quick. Um, and this might not be a quick one, but so we've we've had this discussion in this country, and a member of Congress has called for, and, and many others have, universal basic income. Um, and her, her comment was, we should institute a basic universal income for those unwilling to work. Would that be supported in this country? Would that be supported? Yeah. Um, I think on a broad level, the answer is no. Although I think that as time goes on and people become more dependent on government, then the answer is probably getting closer to yes. Uh, the, should, should it be supported in this country that people who are unwilling to work should be paid not to work? Absolutely not. I, I don't see why the government should be incentivizing people who don't want yeah. to work and have no excuse not to work, not to work. Um, I mean, look, I... The By the way, as I understand it, even though the spending... Hold on, this is an incomplete graph. Even though the spending has increased year per year for K through 12 um, education, when you adjust for inflation, it seems to be relatively consistent. Let me see if I can find any more specific data on this. I don't, his argument that like education keeps going up and 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 than this. Inflation adjusted federal spending per pupil. Well, this is from the Cato Institute. Is this true? This is a huge jump in spending then. Uh, in federal spending, uh, 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 and it hasn't led to an increase in our scores as evidenced. Data source spending, National Center for Education Statistics. 
yeah, I guess I'd want to know, like, where is it going? Like, where is this money actually being spent? You know what I mean? Because the conservative straw man is that progressives just want to throw money at schools, which we know doesn't work. But that's not what we want to do. Changing the ways in which they're funded and then addressing, like, subsequent and adjacent issues seems to be, like, the important thing to do here. I still can't believe Ben Shapiro got away with that shit, dude. Uh, saying that the Finnish educational changes wouldn't work because Finland isn't America and Finnish Americans have a higher lifespan than Finnish people. <laughs> and, and that the free market is responsible for all growth ever. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Find a graph that includes state and local spending. That graph's just federal. Yeah, that's true. We need to see... Um, Yeah, this is also a percent change, not a flat change. I'll look at it more in the future. This is an opinion. I have a different view of humanity, and I think most people want to live lives um, with purpose. Uh, so I think most people do, in fact, want to work. I, I mean, for me, universal basic income is not the end-all, be-all of dealing with the economic issues that people are having. Uh, I know that, that there's been a lot of focus on that uh, because of Andrew Yang and his presidential run and his you know, demand that... He, people get at least $1,000 a month. I don't think that that's going to solve the issues. Um, I think that uh, we have deeper problems that we need to deal with, um, and just throwing money at something in the form of a universal basic income is not going to solve that issue. Uh, but if we decide, okay, maybe we're going to experiment with this on top of providing a much more robust social safety net, uh, then maybe we're having a conversation. But to me, the issue of uh, UBI is, is less less interesting. Okay, final question. We're almost out of time. I'm going to go, I can't go over too long because then I get the hook. Um, we talked a lot about where we're going and a lot of pessimism and a lot of concerns. What gives you hope? Right. She finally got a lot. She actually got the opportunity to say something without Bench jumping in. Now. What gives me hope is the younger generation and just how fired up they are about uh, experimenting with different solutions. Uh, finally, we have a generation that's looking at what's being done in other countries, what's working, what isn't working. Uh, we're now seeing more worker co-ops being developed. In fact, hey. there are as many as 1,000 worker co-ops in this country. Uh, about 500 of them are in the uh, startup phase. Uh, but that is exciting news because now we're seeing companies being formed with workers actually owning the means of production. We're not talking about, you know, the federal government owning the means of production. Anna Kasparian likes my content, by the way. We're talking about actual workers making decisions democratically within the workplace. I think that's the right way to go about it. I love that it's being experimented with among uh, younger workers, and I think that's the right way to go. Ben, what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope is the fact that because this is such a diverse country and because what we are actually watching in real time is, is one of the great sorting features that we've seen in American public life in quite a while, right? We're seeing people like me move to Florida. We're seeing people who are in blue states want to stay in blue states. And what that's going to lead to is more diversity in terms of the, the attempted policies. Uh, and that, in turn, I would hope, would lead to a couple of things. One, better empirical evidence as to what works and what doesn't. And two, I would really hope that it would lead people to look at the federal government and say, this is just something that cannot control the entire country at once with one giant rubric of rules. We have to let California be California, and we have to let Texas be Texas, and we have to let Florida be Florida. And if we can't agree to do that, when we are going to be locked in a never-ending battle for supremacy, and things are going to get very, very, very ugly before this is over. And I think that the, the, the great threat to the country right now is the widely held belief that the solution is not at the local level, and it's not at the state level, that it is all at the federal level. And what we ought to be arguing about each and every day is how- Notice, by the way, how uh, Anna Kasparian was very specific with the things that gave him hope, and right now he's speaking very generally, very abstractly, and very vaguely about what he thinks the federal government shouldn't handle. It's, it speaks a lot, I think, to his priorities because it's, uh, it's kind of ambiguous. What is he talking about, like, not having on the federal level? Some things should be federally regulated.
Other things should be handled by the states. What is he referring to? Hmm. How much money and what sort of regulations we ought to pursue for 330 million people? The longer that continues, the more we're going to decide we don't actually want to be part of that body politic, that the, the rewards of being part of that body politic are not worth the risk of people you oppose taking control of that giant gun that is the government. And are you saying you're going to secede from the federal government? That's explicitly what he's saying right now, right? That he doesn't want to be a part of the, the gun that is the fed. Dude, you can secede if you want, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And military tech has evolved a little bit since Civil War 2.0, so uh, this this one's not going to last. This one's not going to last very long, I don't think. Pointing it at you, so I'm really hoping uh, that that some form of subsidiarity is going to return, uh, and that there will be some governmental figures who are willing to sort of reestablish the checks and balances uh, and and localism that were the hallmark of the republic at the beginning and should be the hallmark of it again. Look, I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, please thank Anna and Ben for being with us. It certainly was a lot of fun. Woo! Thanks. Thanks to all of you for coming out. Appreciate it. Thanks. It looks like they have a little panel afterwards, but I'm already way over time. And what I like to do is look at what the solutions were to get past it, but also to help. Leftist audio. We might cover that that end bit in, in the future. But for now, I think we've covered the debate. I, um, I, uh, 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 I think Kasparian actually did pretty well here. The moderator was clearly like fairly biased and the audience was against her, but I think she did a good job. So I think um, I think she should be happy with her performance. Ben Shapiro was the last person in the world I would ever want to debate. Uh, it's true. Ben Shapiro is very good at debate. Did you see how shamelessly he he pivoted off the Finland education subject by talking about um by talking about whether the Finnish American immigrants had a higher <laughs> yeah he's 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 very good at winning debates. I don't think he's good at being right. Excuse me. Um. Props to Ben for posting the full debate, whereas TYT has only posted their edited highlights, very typical of them. Uh, is that true? Let me see. Imagine live streaming when that's my thing. Is there like a commenter here? Oh, shit. I need to get on one of those. They have it here. Let's see. Anna Kasparian, Ben Shapiro debate highlights. Was, uh, was the Young Turks given permission to air the full video? Or were they only given permission to provide highlights? If they were given permission to provide the full video, then they should post it. Uh, but if not, need to post the whole thing, honestly. Whole video is on Ben's page. I'm hearing she did so bad that I can't. She didn't do bad, I don't think. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like Ben Shapiro is a cut above when it comes to, Anna did say something about them not being able to post it. Oh, okay, if that's the case. Yeah, okay, if that's the case. It makes sense to me that the Chamber of Commerce would be preferential towards Ben Shapiro over Kasparian, you know? Um, anyway, uh, uh, I think Ben Shapiro is a cut above in, in the respect that when it comes to like firing off talking points, I mean, he's obviously very, very effective at that. He's very effective at controlling the conversation. Uh, Anna Kasparian, I think, um, is a very level-headed and intelligence advocate for her positions, but like, it's like playing, it's like the difference between pl like racing and playing Mario Kart. You know what I mean? Like you can be the best fucking Gran Turismo driver or whatever, but then you play Mario Kart and they have the bananas. You know what I mean? Ben Shapiro is the banana lord. He's out there. He plays Donkey Kong and he's just throw he's just yeah, he's just throwing shells all over the goddamn place. Uh <laughs> The video is a 1.1.2 times speed. Uh yeah. How do you think you would fare against Shapiro on a debate? Uh he's so while Ben Shapiro often says really fucking dumb shit, he is incredibly good at what he does. 
uh, I would have to try my absolute hardest. Like, I would have to be at the top of my game uh, to come off looking good in a conversation against him, I think. And I would have to, uh, it would have to be with a neutral moderator as well. Yeah. Now, I think that in, an, in a neutral environment, if we're given enough time and a neutral moderator, I think I could make him look like a fool. I do think so. But it's usually the, the game with him is stacking the cards against that, you know? Like, um, oftentimes, you know, the moderator is on his side, he controls the microphone, stuff like that. Um, what topic would you want? Is there anything he's not stupid on? I feel like with the systemic racism shit, he basically admitted to the premises. Like, like I could get him there easily. For the trans stuff, I don't think there'd really be a point because he just shuts down, man. He just shuts down. It's like men are men and women are women. Like, you can talk about the sex-gender difference if you want, but I feel like he just shuts down. Um, he gets triggered over Israel. The Israel stuff's complicated. Uh, I, I need to do more research on that stuff. Yeah, if I had time to, like, procure studies, I feel like I'd get him on pretty much anything. Uh, when it comes to capitalism stuff, I feel like I could get him on mixed market economies at the very least. On whether or not he's a libertarian, anything related to Trump, stuff like that, you know what I mean? You would need Chomsky-level knowledge to debate him on Israel. Yeah, yeah, because he knows a fuck- he, he definitely knows more about Israel than I do. Way, way, way more. Way, 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 way more. So, um, I would need to be, um, need to be firmly educated on that. Uh, yeah. A plane crashes into an island, etc., etc. Um, you should get Anna on for a convo. She likes you. Yeah, I've talked to uh, Anna in DMs before, so it would be, um, I feel like it's possible, you know? Uh, we'll see. I don't know if she responded the last time I threw a DM over, so I'd have to, have to take a look, you know? Oh, yeah, I invited her on for the um, Planned Parenthood thing, but she was busy, which is totally cool. When are you going on TYT? I don't know, dude. That would require me networking. <laughs> 